Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 102, Back to the Moon. So, yep, we're going back. We don't actually have a landing date yet, or a lander for that matter, but Artemis II is poised to fly a crew around the moon, so it is starting to feel close. And in the meantime, the robots are also doing their bit. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Are there any missions to the moon before Artemis? NASA's first Artemis human landing mission, the crew of which will include a woman and a person of colour, or heck, why not a woman of colour, and why not two? But anyway, that Artemis mission is now scheduled for 2026, remembering it was scheduled for 2025 last year. But before that happens, whenever it does happen, the CLPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, will start to arrive. The CLPS results from NASA engaging private contractors to develop landers as well as various rovers and instrument packages, all with the intention of thoroughly exploring the lunar south pole region, essentially getting the lay of the land before the humans arrive. The first CLPS mission will probably involve the Peregrine lander. The Peregrine will land the Moon Ranger, a rover the size of a small suitcase, which will be able to move around largely autonomously, mapping the surface and looking for signs of subsurface water. Both Peregrine and Moon Ranger will be launched from Earth aboard the Vulcan Centaur rocket, built by the United Launch Alliance. The Vulcan is having a few teething problems and is yet to have a maiden flight, so this mission that was originally scheduled for mid-2021 is now scheduled for 2023. And this is a fairly common theme across the CLPS projects. Bold deadlines that get rescheduled and exciting new technological solutions that are yet to be actually road-tested let alone regolith tested. But, as we say, they're just teething problems. A later CLPS mission, which is scheduled for 2023, and might even fly then, will involve a larger lander, Griffin, which will land a larger rover called Viper, which is NASA's, and hence its name is actually a cute acronym, standing for Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. About the size of a golf cart, it's hoped that Viper will cover quite a few kilometres of the lunar surface, and it has a drill which can penetrate up to a metre down, and it is also looking for water. Viper's mission will include searching permanently shadowed areas by running on batteries and then coming back out into the sun to recharge from its solar panels. And yet another lander called Nova Sea will land a number of instrumentation packages at Reiner Gamma, which is a lunar swirl. Lunar swirls are somewhat puzzling surface features, essentially a curling swirl of brighter, high-albedo regolith. Reiner Gamma is the biggest of several known swirls, 
and it spans about 70 kilometres of the surface. Lunar swirls are thought to be the result of a localised magnetic anomaly in the lunar crust, which in Rainer Gamma's case is strong enough to divert the solar wind, which otherwise tends to darken most of the surrounding surface. The underlying cause of the magnetic anomalies that are the underlying cause of lunar swirls is unclear, although everyone is pretty confident they are not buried alien monoliths. Anyway, Rhino Gamma is definitely worth a look, both to investigate the areas untouched by solar wind, as well as adjacent areas to which the solar wind has been deflected to and hence concentrated. Lunar swirls might even be good locations for lunar bases, given they have their own little magnetic umbrella to protect the base from solar radiation. The European Space Agency will also have a rover on board one of the commercial landers, and the agency has also got on board with using cute acronyms. In this case, PROSPECT, the package for resource observation, and in situ prospecting for exploration, commercial exploitation, and transportation. In other words, it's a thing that's going to look for stuff that you can make money out of. And not to be outdone, NASA has another project called Trident, the regolith and ice drill for exploring new terrain. All in all, CLPS has quite a long list of landers and rovers and cute acronyms, all scheduled to arrive in the early to mid-2020s. And okay, many may have to be rescheduled if things don't go quite according to plan. But hey, just like the astronauts, they will get there sometime soon. This is the middle bit. Well, here we are in mid-2023, and none of these planned missions have eventuated so far. Astrobotics Peregrine Lander is scheduled to launch and then land on the moon later this year, and there could be even more CLPS missions before the year is out. But now, let's look forward a bit. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what will the first lunar colony look like? Well, it will probably be small and cramped and not really a colony, since no one is really going to want to spend their lives there, what with Earth just three days away, so we're probably talking sustained human activity rather than actual colonisation. As we've discussed before on Cheap Astronomy, it's probably going to be a very, very long time before we have space colonies where anyone is going to want to give birth or to grow old. So for the first sustained human presence on the moon, it'll look something like an Antarctic base from the outside and like the International Space Station from the inside. So it will be cramped and functional rather than spacious and comfortable. While there are radiation protection advantages in building something underground, say within a lava tube, that would need to either involve constructing something from scratch or moving something prefabricated into the cavity, which would probably need a crane or something. So it's more likely we'll start with modular structures that can be landed directly on the surface and then we'll use some front-end loaders to cover them with regolith 
for additional radiation protection. Well, let's say that's where your first long-term stay people will live. Well, they start looking to construct something bigger, which might actually be underground. But first, we'd have to find a lava tube that fits the bill of being both big and accessible, as well as being near one of the lunar poles, where both solar energy and radio contact with Earth are available throughout the Moon's orbit around Earth. It's likely that sustained human activity on the Moon will follow a similar path to what sustained human activity in low Earth orbit did. So we might expect there will be an initial focus on just plain survival with a bit of research on the side when people have the time. But once some routines are established and key infrastructure is laid down and sound maintenance and safety protocols are in place, then rich space tourists may start wanting to visit, which will then be an economic driver to enlarge the existing facilities and to start shifting from functionality to comfort. Rich space tourists will not only want to visit, but also to walk outside. So you'll need multiple airlocks and spacesuits and eventually pressurised buses for the less adventurous, as well as for old folks and for children who might not be born there, but will still go there with their parents. And once you have parents and children, there's real impetus to make your lunar base clean and to remove sharp corners and trip hazards. So then the place might start looking like the moon colonies you see in the movies. And of course, parents with children will need family-friendly restaurants and everyone will need gift shops. So suddenly, you've got yourself a whole lunar economy going with staff who need long-term accommodation alongside the tourists who need short-stay hotel accommodation and everyone needs to eat and have access to healthcare and be able to buy a toothbrush and do their laundry and all that stuff. Although, before we get too starry-eyed here, let's face it, submarine tourism has never really taken off. This is partly because most submarines don't have windows, since it gets pretty dark pretty quickly down there, but it's also because a submarine is a cramped, sealed and pressurised structure within a very dangerous environment where one wrong move could kill everyone on board. Of course, there are small research submersibles with big windows and external lights that rich tourists have gone down on, but they've never really taken off in a big way. And of course, there is Antarctica, where a rich tourist can actually fly all the way to the South Pole for a cool 50 grand US. Antarctica is certainly an inhospitable place, and it's a long way to get there without a lot of luxuries on the way. So maybe that's a bit like going to the moon, but even in the most extreme circumstances, you can still breathe. So while lunar tourism might be a bit like Antarctic tourism, it's also a bit like submarine tourism, and neither of those are huge tourism industries anyway. Apart from the Antarctic cruises, but they don't really count as sustained human presence. So, who knows? Here at Cheap Astronomy, we'd be feeling a lot more confident about humanity's next giant step if submarine tourism was a big thing on Earth today. Yes, a few rich folks do it, but it's going to need more than a few rich folks to sustain a lunar economy. 
Anyway, we'll see. This is the end bit. So, there you go. A sustained human presence on the moon is technically feasible and does seem likely to happen for a while, but really sustaining it will ultimately be about whether it's economically sustainable. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you do want a holiday on a submarine, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us blow the tanks for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.